it's it's funny because like sort of my my childhood rebellion then actually ended up, you know, uh, you know, leaving that sort of entrepreneurial spirit of the household at home and then joining a major American corporation. So I ended up joining like you know Microsoft out of college then and uh, starting my career there. And, and that was more like a like, true like that my rebellion was working for the man. Welcome to 14 Minutes of SaaS, the show where you can listen to the stories and opinions of founders of the world's most remarkable SaaS scale-ups. I'm very excited to finally announce the first of a six-episode series recorded with George Pechnik of WeTransfer at the Web Summit in Lisbon. We'd already recorded an interview in Tech Open Air Berlin, but the sound quality at the rooftop of a hotel where we were just didn't cut it. So I had to wait and do this again in Lisbon. And this was a longer conversation. In this series, George will regale us with colorful stories of his life. This really is an exceptional founder's tale, taking us from a childhood experienced in many European languages, entrepreneurial adventures in preserving a castle all the way through to his current position of WeTransfer Chief Innovation Officer and General Manager for the Americas. A musician, dancer, designer, engineer, inventor and entrepreneur, his life is defined by movement, by analytical observation, by self-reflection, creative leaps and ultimately by the enablement of creativity itself. He founded and was CEO of mobile creation tools company 53 in New York and that company was acquired by his current company Amsterdam's WeTransfer. From New Amsterdam to Old Amsterdam, multi-potentialite, polyglottal and multi-hyphenate, George is the man from everywhere with an interest in everything but he is truly the antithesis of an everyman. In episode one, we learn how influential George's famous grandfather architect Hubert Pechnik was in his life and why for designers, it's very important to master as quickly as possible the process of creativity. Once one has achieved that mastery, the mind is freed up to focus on why something should be brought into our world and from that, what that something should be. We have George Pechnik, Chief Innovation Officer at WeTransfer BV, and he was in the past the co-founder and CEO of 53. It's wonderful to meet you again, it's George, and to have you on the show. It's great to be here. It's great <laughs> to be here. So um, I always ask people to tell me a little bit about where they came from and tell me a bit about their lives, let's say before they entered into university, just growing up. Oh my god, before university, so now we're going back into like, so, so the... Childhood. Ch childhood, right, right. And yeah, so I, you know, growing up, I always was sort of the, the, the kid from somewhere else, right? So it was, my parents are Austrian, but I was born in the United States and then grew up in Belgium and in Germany. And when I arrived in Belgium, I was the American. When I arrived in Germany, I was the Belgian, right? And when I then ended up moving later on for my studies in the United States, I was the German. So. Yeah. In many ways, I always was like first from somewhere else, uh, but uh, you know, I, it was, you know, I had actually quite a really fortunate, very, very fortunate uh, childhood in the sense that, you know, um, you know, my mother really taught me how to focus and concentrate really well. And, uh, you know, I had also like was exposed to many, many different from arts to sports, uh, many different cultures to that. And so 
that's sort of the one thing. If you do move around a lot, you learn how to quickly make friends and, and integrate yourself. And uh, you have to learn many languages. So it's also one of those things. Like something must have been broken in my mind. Because <laughs> it, it didn't really speak a language coherently until I was seven. Wow. So you need to really understand a mixture of German, English, and French in order to speak with me because there was no, and there are really tapes of me talking where, it, like it's this language gibberish. Oh, you should, you and, should, and you should publish one of those. Well, yeah, just, well, you know, so, but it is one of those things. So but then when I once started sorting out the language, uh, I think, you know, I ended up then soon getting into like, you know, into different sports, swimming, music, uh, and, and that ended up actually being quite the undercurrent then for my life, just being interested in many, many different disciplines and you know, bring, them, bring them all together. You know, we're both polyglots. I feel it's a very good thing for the brain in the end. It's, uh, it, uh, I became one later in life uh, as an adult, but uh, you, know, you grew up uh, with that while you were still, while the wiring was still loose, while there was still mm -hmm. a lot more connections in your brain. I feel that would have been, um, I feel it was beneficial for me, but for you it would have been explosively beneficial, I think, even though it might have been painful in the earlier years sometimes if someone couldn't understand you, but I think it would have been very good cerebrally for you to have gone through that. Yeah, I, I'm just going to say yes. It's not like I have a choice <laughs> or an alternative. Well, you can disagree. You can, you can no, tell, I mean, you can, you tell me you ended up confused or something. <laughs> Whatever yeah. you believe. Yeah, no, it's like you don't know, but it is like there are certain things where, where, where uh, I, you know, you end up, it just seems normal. Certain things ended up seeing just very, very normal. Yes. Right? And it was one of my things and later on, like, I mean, just to give you an example, like my, you know, I grew up in hospitality, working a lot in, like, in restaurants and entertainment and, um, you know, and that's like one of those things where my parents would just ask me to do everything from, like, playing the fanfare to like doing the dishes to like organizing champagne towers right and it always felt just normal yeah right so it is sort of that flexibility until like you know my my friends didn't want to come over because they always felt like my parents would put them to work and, and that's really? a new, that is a true story they're like we don't want to hang out at your house because we always have we got to wash the dishes we'd have to we, we, we will get involved in the business and it's 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 funny because like sort of my my childhood rebellion then actually ended up, you know, uh, uh, you know, leaving that sort of entrepreneurial spirit of the household at home and then joining a major American corporation. So I ended up joining like you know Microsoft out of college then and uh, starting my career there. And, and that was more like. Like, true, like that, my rebellion was working for the man. I love right? it. I love it. And before we get into. Uh, kind of your, your, your experiences in, in the corporates. Uh, I love that reverse rebellion. Um, I know your mom and your dad and your granddad mm -hmm. were all influential in your life. Tell me a little bit about, um, you know, what you mentioned already, your mother uh, gave you the ability to concentrate, yeah. to focus. Uh, how about your dad and your granddad? Yeah, so the father, on the, the father is, is like, the, he's like the consummate optimist, right? I mean, it's like, you know, there's, and that is, that is the entrepreneurial spirit. You need to have optimism in that certain regard. And, you know, and, and sort of some, a lot of the stuff that I then essentially like, um, a lot of things that I learned from my grandfather in particular, I mean, my grandfather was an architect in, in Germany, was very instrumental in the reconstruction of Germany after World War II. Um, I didn't know that until many, many years later, but he gave me um, the eye of a designer. Yeah, right? can, so, can you name him? Uh, yeah, Hubert Pechnik. Hubert Pechnik. Yeah. So it was, it was interesting because there wasn't, you know, you couldn't sit in a room where he wouldn't like draw some conclusions. He would like look at the shape of a window, the material a window would be made of, uh, or the carpet, uh, and, and, and would relate it to it, how it makes a person feel, 
Like one of the things he would always say is like, you know, George, look at this aluminum window. And I was like, oh, okay, what's the deal with the aluminum window? And he's like, well, pay attention, you will sweat soon, <laughs> right? Because aluminum windows at that time, they were so perfectly made that they would seal in a room. Uh -huh. And, you know, air wouldn't move anymore. And, and of course, the body starts feeling sticky at some, after, after a while, right? And, you know, and then he would break it all down. Like he would say, is like, look, you know, these windows are cheaper. Uh, they're much easier to install, like they actually last much longer than wooden windows, right? But they don't make the person feel well, right? Yeah. So he would then essentially really try to relate everything and all those architectural decisions to like, how does it ultimately make the person feel? And so those types of dialogues and really understanding there are these trade-offs between business, engineering, design, you know, human factors, like he essentially, there wasn't a walk, there wasn't a room, like we wouldn't be in where he would sort of draw out some of those connections. And then on, and on the other hand, you then have like, you know, my mother critiquing, if this was a restaurant, like the presentation, she was in, hot, you know, in hotelier school, she would critique like the delivery of food and the preparation, how the table is set, like how the experience is staged. Needless to say, dinners and restaurants were these highly analytical exercises <laughs> where everything from waitstaff to the interior design would be like discussed wow. and debated, right? But in the end, like you think again, this is normal. And you realize like what it really trained you for is to see sort of, you know, a great eye for experience, a great eye for design, that everything can be really, if it's coordinated, it's spectacular, yeah. right? And if something is off, like, you know, you're very, like, I would very quickly be irritated, yeah. right? Um, and, but that did then really set the eye for, for, for design at a quite it, young age. And it gave you a sense of agency, I guess, a sense that you could uh, control a large part of your own destiny and to an extent, Control, shape control, right. shape what was around you, That's right. um, which would have influenced who you are. And it's, it's interesting what you, you say about your, your grandfather, uh, about um, his pragmatism, uh, because I think a lot of people, when they think of design and they think of the pragmatic aspect to it, they think of, of thinking about the materials and thinking about the commercial aspects as compromises. But actually, they're just part of the design, I think. And, and, and design is a compromise. How can it not be? Yeah. Uh, well, what do you feel about that? No, it's, I mean, this makes me very much think about, I mean, this is actually a fascinating story. Like, my, my grandfather was in the military in, in Germany in World War II um, and was, of course, intimately familiar with, you know, the materials that military structures like bunkers would be made of, beton, sure. glass, and steel. And so after World War II, when he was building, he was, like, deeply unhappy that every building was made of beton, glass, and steel. And, you know, his... His finding around that was that you know we can't build a new society on on those materials. And, and for the listeners, beton is concrete. Oh, concrete. Thank That's you. That's okay. Thank you. No problem. Thanks for, for thanks for I translating. Do, I do the same things. Yeah. Sometimes. So so it was one of those really interesting. And so for him, his decision at that point was to build buildings, and uh, you know um, so that they could be easily disassembled. But it meant you were building very, very light buildings, and uh, because he was like, "Look, we'll take those buildings apart, and once we get the real materials, we'll build the real building, right?" It's, but this was actually, it turned out, architecture. If you know a little bit about architecture, like in the 50s and 60s, a lot of the you know very brutalist, heavy architecture that came from that time is again because those materials yeah. suggested thick. Uh, concrete structures. Absolutely. Except my grandfather's building were these very light, tight, easy buildings, and you know, I mean. Going back to design decisions, right? He had made very, very clear design decisions of those trade-offs. It led for a type of construction. What he could not have expected is that then his buildings end up becoming landmarks 
yeah. so you couldn't take them <laughs> apart anymore. But oh, uh, but it's it the was the irony of it. Yeah, but, yeah. But you know, in theory, you can actually disassemble them, and that is like one of those things. It's like you know, as a designer, you know, once you sort of mastered, or you know, once you've mastered sort of the actual making and the process and all of this, like you know, the 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 why of your choice becomes much more prominent and okay. it's actually a really exciting thing that in your career at some point you can then very much quickly then master the why and the what it is the, the why are you doing this work and what is are, are you doing and again it doesn't guarantee the right outcome but it definitely sets you up for the right direction absolutely right? absolutely or at least you know what that direction then is and that's a really empowering feeling and you i'm just wondering because i your your father or your grandfather had the the amazing good fortune well he earned it for sure listening to the story about him to live in uh paramount castle in eiffel which is or, or, or yes which is which is in the um intersection of germany uh luxembourg mm. and belgium um did you get to spend some time there as a kid that's where i worked every weekend pretty much oh my god I, yeah I, it's spectacular well have you been have no, you seen, or no. you, see, you know the area? No, I, I went to know, but I know what the castles in those areas are like. I've yeah. been in some of those, but I haven't been in that one. And I had a look at some pictures of it as well. Yeah, so, I mean, that's, this, this is interesting. Okay, we'll talk some more about my grandfather, <laughs> but like, you know, he was on the one side, like he was a very also, you know, very, he was a very impatient yeah. individual. And, um, you know, but he loved building and creating. And um, one of the things that the architectural firm HP ended up doing is, um, they they were looking for like this is like pre fax machines pre uh, you know internet pre many of the modern conveniences of communication like pre CAD programs sure like what he ended up doing essentially is finding this castle and restoring this castle for his firm to bring all of the different parties in a construction project together like so you know the financing the the construction leads uh, the architects the different trades they all would come to the castle and just hash out these plans like and just try and make as many decisions as possible, right? And that's sort of where, where initially that, that place um, started out. Architecturally also, it had sort of, um, you know, his partner was a, um, you know, a fellow of uh, Mies van der Rohe, student of Mies van der Rohe's, uh, actually, I'm not sure if it was like this Professor Hendrick, but he, they, they saw the shape of Bourg Pramont. And Mies van der Rohe used to do those buildings that you could kind of, uh, you could kind of, um, Rejig them or reconfigure there, them there, as well. There, there was, there is a, you know, I mean, it is very, you know, the, the Bauhaus movement very much celebrate the function and, you know, of, of, and a certain more geometric aesthetic, Absolutely. right, was part of that. But essentially, Bookproman had that aesthetic, the bones, okay. and then they restru- re, re, rebuilt that castle. But that's essentially then, like in the 90s, then, um, you know, as, as uh, my parents decided then essentially to, to run then that, that castle. Um, you know, obviously, as as an architect, like you know, running a castle it becomes much easier than, like, <laughs> in my case, like, you know, my, you know, as a, as, as a business person, like my, you know, my parents, right? So there was more, you know, we had to figure out how to turn then that into more of a commercial business. So, uh, they, so to pay for the castle and the massive upkeep on it, that's right. They had to find a bit, a bit like some of the landed gentry in, in yeah. Britain and Ireland. They they, yeah. they they end up with the same problem. Yeah. If they want to hold on to it, they have to really turn into entrepreneurs. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I mean, it's like up. Upkeep of castles is is a uh, is you know, there there are boats and then there are castles. Like boats are easy in comparison to castles, <laughs> right? Because they're just massive, right? So, 
that meant like just many, many, many uh, weekends of trying to figure out what a business model there could be, and uh, hence playing fanfares, sword fights, whatever, whatever needed to whatever get needed done. Whatever needed to get done to, right. to, to bring some. And, and now you understand why joining a company like Microsoft, my my child rebellion, I get of joining it. a major corporation is just like it, that structure. It was, it was almost like meditating. No, yeah, you could almost shut down and still like, be okay over there. Yeah, that was like nothing. There's like, <laughs> you know, there is not rusty chain mails that needed to like get oiled, and I mean every so much goes like you know you're battling with nature you're battling with like the elements you're battling with just the size you're battling with history like on these properties so like you know a major corporation is so pretty straightforward in episode 102 of 40 minutes of SAS, the second in our six-part series with george pechnik we hear about the moment he realized he'd been a groundbreaking designer for years and not just a smart engineer You've been listening to 14 Minutes of SaaS. Thanks to Mike Quill for his creativity and problem-solving skills, to Ketsu for the music, and to Anders Getz for the transcript. This episode was brought to you by me, Stephen Cummins. If you enjoyed the podcast, please don't forget to share it with your network, subscribe to the series, and of course, give the show a rating.